plants actually dance. If you time lapse record them, you'll see that they dance literally all day. Mm -hmm. That's like that's like saying like a car chase at ten miles an hour is still a car chase. This is really not. It's it's just driving. They're slow dancing. Slow dancing. <laughs> tai Chi. Tai Chi is not dancing. But you dishonor slow. this age-old martial it's, arts. It's slow martial arts. It's all the breathing. And they're all about the photosynthesis, so same, same. Wait, Tai Chi is <laughs> about photosynthesis? No, the plants are all about the photosynthesis. That's why they dance, because they move their leaves in different directions, so that way they can get the most optimal sun. So they're begging for light. No, they're stretching for light. Literally, one of my succulents they is just, stretching. They just don't give. They're just always taking. You know, They, they reach give out. you it's oxygen just, when the world know. is smoky outside. I don't know. I get my oxygen from, you know, free range outdoors. I don't need a plant Except inside. for the days when it was smoky outside and we couldn't even open windows and we were breathing our own breath well, that was also plants fault why were they burning so much okay those they made human, those yeah humans the fault. plants burned made the smoke and i couldn't breathe on so. a more interesting note <laughs> if i may if, if I, I may, may. Oh, oh please go ahead i love interesting <laughs> what do you mean this isn't interesting i love audio audio interesting audio did you know dude is an abbreviation of doodle from the phrase Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was used to refer to a fastidiously overdressed man. I am familiar with Yankee Doodle. Um, I don't know. Do you actually know that song? Does that is that did that come up in the UK? Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony. Stuck a feather in his hat and called, called it macaroni. macaroni. Welcome to Third Culture Block, a podcast where we talk about the experiences that have led us to art and who we are today. This is Ahmed Mustafa, Hassan Jabil, and Muhammad Ismail. On today's episode, we'll be investigating identity in the arts. Since we've talked about being third culture kids, as well as global citizens, one of the things that we wanted to touch on was how we can imbue our identity, our style, and ourselves into art. So one question I think we should definitely explore in today's episode is whether identity forms our creativity or whether creativity forms our identity. So you're thinking in terms of like, does experience um, that makes us who we are create um, the creativity or is it like the experience with creating? What I've seen is that when you are lost, when you are seeking identity, when you are seeking kind of purpose, it's not that you shy away from art and you have this block. It's that you just start doing pieces or doing like, even if it's not art, even if it's lines or bubbles or whatever like you're doing, you're doing it so that you can parse out and find where you land personally, style and identity-wise. So what I find really interesting about our situation as third culture kids is, you know, we spoke about it in the last podcast of how home is everywhere and nowhere at the same time and how mm -hmm. our identities are somewhat fluid. We do have mm -hmm. 
a certain set of identities that we subscribe to but as third culture kids we find it very easy to associate or identify with other cultures so with that being said with such a fluid identity do you feel that plays a role in our creativity i think whenever i'm trying to be creative there's a lot of my creative works that are informed by memories and experience that i've had like something that i've been doing with writing or with um i guess uh even acting and performing is you get characters from your life and um imbue them into what you're doing so i was talking to we saw the other day about she was she asked me how do actors cry and for me the way you would do it is that you would tie kind of the experience your character's having to a specific experience that you're having. So because performing arts, I feel, are very exper experiential, it's really easy to tie them to your past experiences and to your memory. And to a certain extent, as a third culture kid, I have a different subset of those um, memories to pull from. So there's a very unique feeling and experience around two older Arab men who one owes the other money but doesn't want to ask for it but also wants the money and then that whole interaction that happens there and all the questions that are associated with it and this weird friendly tension and uh, hospitality, that's not something that I've found really in, in my, in, in kind of my more, you know, Western business interactions where it's just mm. like, psh, psh, give me your money. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's, there's, no, there's this straight hostility. There's no need for pretense or hospitality. And so that is definitely a third culture experience that I can specifically pull from and imbue into a, a character that I'm playing. Right. And moreover, I can take that specific person and write them into my book. Like right now in my rough drafts, I take specific people. So like I'll take my friend Richard and I'll name him Richard in my book until the rough draft is over. And then I'll start renaming and, and taking kind of personal information about out from that person because having living, breathing people and memories in your writing, I feel is a great way to build living breathing characters right right but I, I think it might be different for um more visual arts i don't know if it's the um the third culture part or like a merge of the two but i do find myself trying to um create different designs that take from this culture and then infuse it with another culture in terms of like even in terms of art right like you can have like we can use an example um like with uh, some of my pottery designs where you have like the bold minimalist solid color and then the uh, on one part of the bowl or the plate or whatever then you have the the berber um libyan inspired um designs um on the other side so that's literally marrying the two 
you know, you have like the modern and simplest, um, what is it called? Minimalist kind of, of, of essence to it. Um, that comes from a more Western concept. Yeah. And then, um, and then you have the bold, hard, um, historical, historically inspired lines, um, to the right. And so it's two worlds in one plate. Yeah. So I, it's definitely, there's, there is a there is a hard influence of the two worlds. It's a very difficult question to answer, namely because I don't consciously set out to create a piece of work specifically to represent all my identities. Um, the work I do create is most likely subconsciously influenced by my identities, but it's never conscious. I would say one thing, though. I do love taking pictures of people so the human element within my photography is a major part of my theme of my style and that is definitely a more western thing because it's more accepted in the western world to be out doing street photography of taking pictures of people in the street being human whereas for example, back home in Libya, particularly before the revolution, it was a massive no-no. There was a very small window following the revolution where people were more than happy to have their pictures taken. Mm -hmm. And I do remember, I have like this very vivid memory. I had a glide cam, which was a, um, a camera stabilizer. And we parked the car outside Martyr's Square. And I remember just walking from where we parked our car, walking into Martyr's Square, and then walking around Martyr Square on a Friday and every single individual, it didn't matter, man, woman, child, it's a very obvious piece of gear. So everyone who saw me would smile. And I think that was the small window where you were able to do that in Libya. After that, it's gone back to being quite taboo yeah. to be doing street photography. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually really interesting now now that you kind of mentioned that where that as that like a western thing because we do come from a tradition of like iconoclasm right the quintessential arabian or even islamic muslim art isn't necessarily people it's usually geometric patterns or it's mm -hmm. um some colors or it's some designs because you know in islam it's it's very like you're try not trying to depict specific people of history or immortalize them uh to mislead others there's usually more of an, of an emphasis in the natural beauty of symmetry and the natural beauty of color so thinking about people in photography or people in art being a western thing that kind of just triggered that very dissonant part of your identity where you're like trying to get pictures of people but at the same time the eastern tradition is very far from it i think also something that um i was first told when i should when i wanted to start writing was finding something that should be part of this conversation i think is finding um, different voices that you like or different artists that you like and then emulating that before you're able to discover your own voice, right? So I know that we saw you really like Alex Stroll's photography. 
and his style. And sometimes you see things and you're like, oh, I want to do something like that. I want to be him. Right. And so that, that I think, is also part of the the identity slash style of your creative. Well, it's, not, it's, a, it's, it's part of the style of creativity. When you just like talking about like uh, seeing his work and be like, oh, I want to do that. Um, it just threw me back into one of my photography classes. One of our projects was here is the school archive of photographers. Pick one. And like you said, emu- try to emulate him as much as possible. Um, him or her. Um, and... Um, and if you, and like with the, with that project, and if you, like, to be like it's a, you you'll pass and get a it's a successful project if you captured the essence of the photographer, hmm. all while these capturing your own. I did Harry Callahan. Harry Callahan is one of my favorite photographers of all time, um, and I find one thing that I found to be different from him was his like um during his time color photography was the magical sense and black and white photography was the norm so it was that's just like storytelling that's normal that's you know that's not his imaginative world versus like me it's like the opposite color photography is the norm and the black and white for me has this sort of like imaginary world to it i just remember when I started to try to look at the world in a different way from a different view, it helped me look at the world in my own view. Then I started trying to find mm. the world in my eyes, um, whether like whether picking up intentional or non-intentional. Um, like through topics, the differences? Through or? the differences. Um, through the differences and similarities. Because I think one thing, one reason why I really loved him was he has a very contrasting, um, which is something that I do. Uh, we were actually talking about this earlier. Um, the 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 pockets of lights, mm. right? I just that's one thing why I was really drawn to him was because I have this drawing, like I love contrasted pockets of light kind of like a moth you yeah. just go towards the light <laughs> <laughs> um in, in photos but i don't know where i'm going with this it's going somewhere but um this journey's been good though you don't need to end anywhere you know um so it's so so finding so w- like you said finding your own voice or your own identity within some or or just by going towards what you like kind of like we were saying in order to be a good writer you have to know what's good writing mm-hmm. so you have to read a lot or you have to blah, blah blah and then so by reading a lot you pick up on different styles and you pick up on different verbiage and pick up on different um whatever and um and then you start to develop your own so um yeah that just really sparked the harry callahan of my photography life mm. Ugh, i love him so much I had a very similar experience uh, to you, we saw when it came to photography. I was first, probably the the biggest name that I was first exposed to was Steve McCurry, who is just a fantastic street photographer. And just being exposed to his work really influenced my style. But then, like you said, 
you you imitate them for a while, but then you start seeing the world through your own identity and through your own eyes. And then you start to play around with that imitation that you've been practicing for, for so long. And then all of a sudden you find yourself formulating your own sort of style when it comes to photography. So the likes of Joseph Kudelka uh, or Robert Kapper, these in my eyes are absolute legends when it comes to street photography. Mm. But then I took that and just made my own style out of that because my upbringing and my identity is very different to theirs. They will see the world in a different way. So we could be mm -hmm. in the same setting. We could be in the exact same spot and we would take a different picture of the same event, maybe from a different angle, maybe focusing on the, on a, a different aspect of that scene. But there's a very high likelihood of, of each picture being slightly different due to the fact that mm. it's being taken by a different photographer with a different set of identities. That's the stuff um, that Ira Glass kind of talks about in becoming a creative. Um, you know what's good and you, because you read it, you see it and you experience it. And it's about keeping at your craft until you too are making things that are good. And it helps to have kind of a model of, all right, I think this is good. And that's to my taste and to a certain extent to my style. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I can make something that I think is good by this standard. And then either you go above and beyond it by um, finding a new person to go to or you just tangent, like you said, and imbue yourself into it. And it has to be subjective. Art has mm. to be subjective. There's no such thing as objective art because it's not interesting then. There's another photographer, another great hero of mine, Sebastio Salgado. He was an adamant believer in the principle of photography not being objective. He even pushed for people to be well-versed in history, in geopolitics, in sociology, in anthropology. Because that all forms yeah. your identity and it forms your own style. And it's so crucial. And I'm hoping that our shift towards a more globalized village sort of identity as, as humans doesn't water down the individual identities that we do have. Because that's what makes mm -hmm. us interesting as humans. The fact that we are different. Rather than it being something feared, it should be something which is celebrated. No, and I, I don't think that I don't I don't think that we're at fear of of diluting our our identity. I think it's kind of like the infinite permutation kind of thing. We just keep mixing and mixing and mixing and making new things. I would be devastated if if we started just like globalizing and becoming kind of the same voice. It's actually interesting. I'm looking at the based off what you guys were saying. I was looking at different authors that I've read and enjoyed and wanted to emulate, and it's kind of they're kind of similar, but kind of across the board. There's um, there's uh, Salahuddin Ahmed, um, and he created kind of this first representative representative book of the Arab world, right? It's, um, he, he wrote a book called the, the throne of the crescent moon, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially what really like 
captured me in that moment was like v- towards the very beginning of the book the main character is kind of this older shaykhi kind of guy and he goes into like a coffee shop and it's just like those stupid jokes that your uncles or cousins or or, or your dad and his friends or those just like the two old man jokes that you know it has the feeling it's been said a hundred times between the two of them but it's just still funny for them because you know um it's an inside joke and so it, the the small bickering that happens and the witty it, it's not like book witty where it's like no one would actually think of that in real life and so you have this perfectly crafted wit and and flow mm. of a sentence it's it's the real life, like oh, you were in the room when these two were at it, kind of, kind of witty. And right, so he right. totally drops you into that scene, and from then on, like the 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 book kind of goes goes wild in a lot of ways. But it's for the most part, like the social interactions and the characters and the people, like I could I could place a lot of them with you know friends and family, and it it was. It was really exciting for me because I was going from you know high fantasy of Middle East, middle um, I mean m- medieval Renaissance like London Ireland kind of books, elf dwarf to ghouls and jinn and like and sorcerers or whatever, uh, and it all just kind of made sense and I think is a big inspiration for what the kind of books that I want to write. But at the same time, there's the very first book that I read and was lost in um, when I was young by Laura Whitcomb. It's called A A Certain Slant of Light. And it's actually kind of, it's a horror book, but it's really sad. And also, thinking back on it, maybe I was too young to be reading (laughs) that book. Um, But I remember reading it and just realizing, oh, like, this is why people like reading. Um, (laughs) And it's it's like very like I, I don't know if I'd recommend people reading it unless you're like emotionally prepared but it's very very different from what Saladin is is writing and I think it's Saladin but I'm saying Saladin so sorry about that um but yeah just like putting those two together and then Neil Gaiman as just like telling his stories as if they're made for children and everything is this way of course it is like <laughs> that that kind of voice as well uh, they're, they're incompatible but they just tickle me so like so deeply that i want to mix them together somehow When I visited Libya following the revolution it was very interesting to see how quickly the Libyans were ready to just adopt graffiti work and I was comparing it with the graffiti work I was seeing in the UK and it was there was a stark contrast so on the one hand in the UK you have people suffering and them talking about their suffering so they would talk about class warfare they would talk about corrupt politicians they would talk about military spending being way too high and how those billions could be used in the educational system, the healthcare system to kind of help our national uh, health service. But then when I went to Libya, it just seemed to be on a completely different level because although the artwork was not as sophisticated in some circumstances, 
it would actually hit even harder because it would be someone writing a very long list of all the people that had died. The very canvas on which they graffitied that would just be bullet ridden. And mm. that in itself would paint just such a powerful image and you could feel the pain of this person. Yeah, and I think something that we have kind of skirted around but is worth mentioning is the emotional element, right? When you may have your style, you may have your identity, you may have this this overarching experience that informs what you're doing, but pieces in a moment are capturing an emotion, right, as well. So there are some pieces that we saw will make that it's still her style, but it's this chaotic and very dark and scary thing to look at. Whereas there's other things you can look at and it's like, nah, 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 nah. Mm, that is and, aesthetically pleasing. Right. And <laughs> I, I think, I think that's kind of something that maybe you had sensed, like there's a certain urgency of emotion uh, in that bullet ridden graffiti. That's not, it's not political. Like, it's not like trying to make a movement or make a change or or politically driven. It's just I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm I need to get this out, and it's on the wall now, you know. And that that raw emotion I think got communicated with just those names more so than a lot of images could actually do. You know, some images are thinkers. Mm. Sometimes it's just words, and it's like ah, like you see walk around sometimes in Berkeley. There's lists of people who have died. Like for the BLM movement, yeah, and it's no, there's not nothing beautiful about it. It's just names written it's almost in yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just you. Each name has a story and a life, and you you recognize that like an entire human experience is represented by these like seven letters. And I genuinely believe it's more powerful because you have a human element to the suffering. So instead of just talking about injustice as a concept, you inject it with people with names that you may have heard of mm. there's a fantastic film on netflix right now called the trial of the chicago seven and a major element of that movie and the real life story on which it's based is that they collected the names of every single soldier that died in vietnam and when you see a fellow human suffer it is so much more difficult to turn a blind eye or to kind of cover your ears or pretend you didn't see or hear anything whereas if yeah. you just see on a wall saying justice for all it's it's an easy thing to kind of swallow but when you write down so and so seven years old was killed because of police brutality or because of this brutal dictator it hits you different mm. yeah it's like the same as like the hashtag say her name or say their name like it's like it's not just like these are human like it's it like you like you said it emphasizes the human experience so it's like this is a human just like you So most of the time when you're starting a creative project, you drive your inspiration through questions. And we figured this would be a good transition for our questions and answers section from you all. If you'd like to post questions in the future, we post our topics on our Twitter and Instagram, both Third Culture Block with a three. So our first question is from a listener asking if Third Culture kids romanticize the home country the same way that their parents do. So from my perspective, my parents never 
overly romanticized the idea of back home. They did talk about it a lot, namely because the 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 plan was to always go back after a few years of being mm. in the UK. So I grew up learning about my family back home, about my culture, about my language. And they did speak about Libya, but they never spoke about the political turmoil that was happening at the time. To the extent that I remember once flying back to Libya, landing in Tripoli airport and seeing the biggest portrait of Gaddafi in the airport. And I must have been younger than eight years old. I just remember turning to my dad and saying, who was that? Because even as a child, I recognized that this is clearly somebody very important because you have a massive picture of him in the airport. Mm. So I remember looking up to my dad and saying, who is that? And my dad just like, shh, 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 don't talk about it. And that Mm. was the mentality at the time of like, you don't even, in a positive way, you don't really draw attention to the fact that there is a massive picture of this guy (laughs) in the middle of the airport. You have just to pretend that it's a normal thing to have. It's okay, you know? (laughs) I kind of had like a little bit of an opposite experience. When I was a little kid, I went to Libya and there's a story of my uncle Adnan um, whisking me away in a car, like like if we got chased by a car because... Uh, my dad had talked so much like bad stuff about Gaddafi back home that when I went to Libya, I saw pictures and I just started throwing rocks at them, like in in, in public. <laughs> and that was like oh. a good way for a young boy to die. Uh, so, like, I definitely had a preconceived notion of like what's right and what's wrong and the way that Libya should be, and that definitely changed once I actually went but like the only reason that it was romanticized is because my only impression of it was through my parents so after after I'd gone there myself that was pretty much quelled and I had formulated my own opinion even though I was born in the states and grew up in the states for the most part there was always those pictures of Libya from the 70s that's and the stories that you hear from family that are like oh well you know, if if Libya wasn't taken over by Gaddafi, it would be like Dubai is today or whatever. Or the cl- streets were so clean and anyone could leave the door open or leave the door unlocked because, you know, the communities were so close-knit. Uh, if only, you know, Libya of the 70s could come back. And the way that would happen is if we um, removed Gaddafi from power. I, that That whole sentiment was, you know, my formulated idea of what... Uh, Libya was throughout my time in in the States. When it comes to growing up and learning about Libya, I think it was heavily romanticized by the remnants of memories my parents had of it because both of them left the country when they were young. Baba left when he was um, 19, question mark. Um, And my mom left when she was in high school, both for political reasons. But the memories that they left behind were very extremely romanticized or like they tried to hold on to the romanticized memories that they had of Libya because they just didn't want to think too much or relive any like negative parts or didn't want to to um, kind of push us away or wanted us to love the country that they love so dearly. So there's a little bit of that. Um and my grandpa would tell us stories as well. Um, we would see my grandparents 
I'd come home every summer, and my grandpa would talk about anything and everything beautiful about it. He was probably Libya's number one hype man, but we were also properly educated on Gaddafi and the works of Gaddafi and and why Baba was like why we were in America in the first place and what happened and all that fun stuff. And I just remember hearing about every week there's a, a gathering and the family gathers together and the Eid they spend together and Ramadan and blah, blah, blah. And it was extremely, it sounded so beautiful. And then you see the black and white photos from when my parents were kids and and all the family like having picnics together and all that fun stuff. It just, um, it really painted a beautiful picture of what society would be um, and how life would be in Libya. Technically, my first time I was one and a half when I when I first stepped foot in Libya, but I don't remember that, so I don't count it. So when I was ten, that was probably the first time, like with an impressionable mind, um, visiting Libya, and it was nothing like what was told of it and I think I've mentioned this before that the first time I learned that I was a girl like what it meant to be a girl was when I visited Libya and that was kind of hard and then when I lived there 2011 was my first Eid in Libya and (laughs) it sucked (laughs) so all the stories you hear of family coming together and everything it just I think the life there kind of changed. Things were extremely different and not the same as the stories that were told to us growing up. Once I was old enough to create my own experiences in Nibia, I started to view it in my own personal way. And so I always say it's like my Libya. My Libya is totally different from anybody else's perspective of Libya unless I show it to them in my like from my shoes and then they're like, oh yeah, okay, I see it from your point. But even then, I think as a third culture kid, leaving Libya and living back in the States now, I've desperately tried to hold on to any of the positive and like amazing memories of it. And amazing experiences that I had and all the fun times and the adventures and my Libya. I just try to hold on to that. And then when I visit it again nowadays, things change. People have changed. Time doesn't stop for anybody. I realize in my own sense that I too have been a victim of romanticizing Libya a lot more than and giving it more credit than it's due. But... It doesn't mean that the good memories that I have are not real or did not exist. They happened. But that's not all that happened. And Like um, the Libya for you is like the Libya that you experienced rather than like the 70s Libya that everyone's kind of toted praises about. You know what I mean? Yeah, but okay. So, but I think every generation romanticizes it in their own The good way. old days kind so of argument. So I think everybody romanticizes whether you're from Libya or from Palestine or from um, Japan, right? Like, I feel like if you're away from a place for too long, you're not going to witness the changes as they happen. So you'll overly romanticize it 
or you'll sound like you're overly romanticizing it because your experiences are now different from the everyday Joe. I'd much rather like romanticized versions than like perverted versions of traumatic experiences making them worse than they actually ever were. It's better to go down that sort of form of extremism than it is the other, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I mean, in an artistic sense, I think. Yeah. Like it's, it. I, I think, I, imbuing an identity that is kind of this idealistic, like, positive force, will help you in the long run rather than you know going down like the painful, misunderstood artist route of trauma and putting that on paper. Yeah, but I also feel like it's healthy to have a balance because you do have to sometimes remind yourself of the realisticness because sometimes it can be dangerous if you just dwell on the romanticized memories it can hurt you even more if all you think of oh it's a beautiful positive place and then it's like oh no it's a horrible place then everybody's gonna kill you right and then um right just like that just like that so then you go back and then it's it's just a, a, a big like you you've shut out all of the negatives to the point where you're re experiencing different negative scenarios and it makes you hate the experience altogether versus if you keep in mind the positive but also keep in mind the realistic attributes that make this country or make this home or make these memories um, that way when you go back you'll have like a really good balanced expectation right and that's what i think makes it hard when you go back and you don't have bad memories right yeah. like it was really beautiful before and then you come back and there's bad memories You're, now yeah. it's like i wasn't mentally prepared for this yeah like because then you would have these really it 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 it, it real makes your expectations a little bit more realistic mm. and i think i'm saying this from experience where going back the first time after after two years where i was thinking like for me like nothing's changed in two years but you go back, everybody's adulting, everybody's living their life, everybody has jobs, everybody has their own time, their own schedules, their own lives. Social norms and yeah. vocab. And- so then it was just like, it had. I had to take a step back and remember that life didn't stop there just because I left. And I think that's the core behind this romanticization. Yeah. Romanticization. Romanti- romanticizing. Romanticization. I'm going to leave all three attempts in the... Roma- <laughs> Ro- Roman <laughs> Empire. Romanticizing, but yeah. Thank you guys so much for your questions and for listening in. This is Ahmed Mustafa. We saw Jibril. And Muhammad Ismail.